Good morning, Caroline. Good morning. And to our listeners, hello, I'm Bridget, and you're listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son and brother Andy is our producer. So we're having a lot of fun. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma, so listener discretion is advised. And Caroline, you and I today are going to be reflecting on and telling the story of the, uh, well, we'll call it Killer Secrets. That's the name of our episode. Uh, There are a lot of secrets in this family, and I believe that these secrets help cause the pressure that leads to murder. But anyway, we'll find out. Mabel May Shegwin Grinander. She went by May, so we'll call her May. At age 58, was going back to both work and school. So she's gonna she's going through a renaissance. She was earning her master's degree, studying to be a nurse practitioner. She's a small-framed woman who had immigrated from Columbia to wind up living in the perfect well-to-do community of Wellesley, Massachusetts. Well, my goodness. She was married for many years to a renowned and respected allergist who specialized in helping children with allergies. His name is Dr. Dirk Greinander, and he was renowned and beloved member of the ultra-rich community of Wellesley. So now on this day, as with every day, because May and Dirk Greinander walked regularly with their dogs in a place called Morse's Pond, and they were walking together as usual on Halloween morning, 1999. Morse's Pond was very near the Grinder's house at 56 Cleveland Road. It was a well-used area every day of the week with a beach. There was boating, trails, and, and all kinds of stuff. And it was very near the Wellesley Center in the hub of town. So it was heavily used. And it was there that Dirk Grinder murdered May. And he almost got away with it, Caroline. He bludgeoned her to death and almost decapitated her by slicing into her throat. The Grinder children, as our story goes, they're going to have a very difficult time believing that their father murdered their mother. But I I wonder if that's true. I know you have some thoughts about it, Caroline. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, we talked about this. It's a little bit more even than the everyone grieves differently. I mean, this is a layer that I don't know that a lot of us can relate to. You know, parents getting divorced is one thing, but one parent being accused of murdering the other. I mean, that's going to tear you apart. Well, Dirk. Well, Dirk. Dirk Reininger was born in Germany in 1940. His father was a physician and a medical officer in the SS until he moved his family to Lebanon in 1945 when war broke out. And then eventually he moved to his family moved with his family to the United States. And this is very perplexing to me because his father was a medical officer in the SS. And I feel like in 1945, a- wasn't, what role would he have been playing in the war to well, become so sick of it that he would move to Lebanon? Yeah, well, and I think I have a preconceived notion about what a medical 
officer and physician in the SS is doing. None of it is the good stuff, right? Like, yeah. You're not a family practitioner. You're probably experimenting on people. That's an assumption I'm making. So Yeah, if we had really... Yeah, we have no insight into no. what was really going on, but we do Maybe know that he was in the SS. Maybe he like a and lot of that's scary to me. Yeah, well, yeah, because we there's shows now about how we you know hunt these old Nazi officers who came and hid their past. Oh yeah, was his dad trying to hide a past, or was his dad truly escaping something that he didn't like being a part of? I, I don't know. Yeah. We don't know any part about it, but it's a very curious. Element. So Dirk Grinder arrived in America at age sixteen. He went to Harvard and Case Western and became an amazing doctor whose patients adored him. He that his background, his education is like unbelievable. He was so brilliant. And if your child had allergies, Dr. Grinder was the holy grail of care. He practiced at Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates and had an allergy clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital. All top, top notch. He was a fixture in the community. He was a source of pride and a beacon of hope for his community. And as if that isn't glowing already, Dr. Grinader conducted significant research and was a contributing author of many scientific papers at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and he taught university classes. So, okay, when do you sleep? I just was going to say I'm tired. I'm tired for I'm him. tired too. I mean, I'm happy that he did this kind of dedicated work because allergies are huge. I mean, that's a huge problem for especially kids, but whoa, I'm exhausted. All three of the Grinders' grown children attended Ivy League schools, and two of them were practicing doctors, and one was a business manager in 1999. Holy guacamole. Yeah. During their walk on October 31st, which was a Sunday, May hurt her back. And in the middle of the walk, she took a rest while Dr. Grinader continued walking with the dog. He said the dog became disturbed and took off back to where May was left resting. And when Dr. Grinader reached his wife, May was brutally bludgeoned and hacked to death. He tried to revive her and he checked for a pulse on her neck even though her throat was slashed so gapingly that she was almost decapitated, he tried to lift her but could not. So, okay, according to him, all this has happened and he's just a hapless uh, husband not knowing what happened and oh my God. William Keir was walking his small dog that morning on the pond access road, a two-lane paved road leading to a parking lot and a and a beach at the pond, when he says Dr. Grinder crossed in front of him. This occurred when Keir was at the entrance to the parking lot off the pond access road, and William Keir saw Dr. Grinder emerge from the woods on a dirt path, cross in front of him. Grinder didn't say anything, such as, help me, help me. He just sort of continued walking fast and walking westerly down an unnamed road and out of sight. Grinder had a backpack, and he was walking rapidly with a dog on a leash. So about 45 to 90 seconds later, Keir entered the middle of the parking area when he said Grinder reemerged from the road where Keir had last seen him. Grinder approached Keir and asked if he had a cellular telephone. Um, so let's unpack this. Grinder's coming out of the woods. 
He's seen by this man, William Kerr, but he doesn't say hi, doesn't say help me, help me, runs to an unpaved road, and then 30 to 45 seconds reappears from the unpaved road and comes back and says, do you have a cellular phone? What do you, um, what do you can think? Can I was, borrow your cellular phone? What do you think he was doing? I mean, because in my mind, I'm thinking he must be stashing something if he's going back and forth. You know, and he's. Yeah, I mean, Grinder said his wife had been attacked. He pointed up the path beginning where Kerr first saw him. And Grinder said he, uh, he had a cellular telephone in his van and he would and he would make the call. So never mind, I don't need to use your phone. On the way to his van, he passed another man named Rick Mag- Magnum. Now, Caroline, you remember I said at the beginning, this Morse's Pond, it's busy. Yeah. It's busy. Yeah. And so it makes me wonder, why would a, you know, sword-wielding thrasher who's going to bludgeon somebody to death be running around on a busy daylight like this? But right. it, nevertheless, Reiniger said, never mind, I, I'll go make the call. And when he was going to his van, he passed another man, Rick Magnin. He yelled to Magnin and asked if he had a cellular phone. Magnin said, no, I do not. So Grinder walked to where his van, walked to where his van was parked and telephoned Wellesley police from his van. So um, very suspicious. Very suspicious. Um, Although I I do want to say this is early enough in the history of the world that it would be fairly normal for a lot of folks not to have a cell phone. They were like flip phones at this point. They weren't computers, but yeah. um, Okay. Yeah. At the same time, what's odd to me is, is this, if the story that you're telling is true, excuse me, and you came upon your wife and she's all bloody and then, yeah, you pass somebody, like you go from one road to another, you pass somebody, either you don't see him which is odd. Or, or, But like, why are you never screaming? Why is there no vo- uncontrolled vocalization about what's going on around you, right? Because you would think that's even the dog. Why isn't the dog barking? <laughs> I don't know. I've yeah. Questioned. So he isn't screaming for help. He's not saying, help me, help me. He's jog- jogging from where he just left his beloved wife who is dead. And he says nothing to a passerby. That's weird. Instead, he briskly walks on by without saying a word, only to emerge a minute or so later and ask the guy, do you have a phone? My wife has been attacked. Oh, never mind. I'll just go to my van, call the police. But he sees another person and says, do you have a phone? No, I don't. So he goes to his van to call police. So, you know, I'm with you. I mean, I'm, it is early, but I, I'm sorry. In my mind, I think most people would either stay with their loved one or run as fast as possible to their van. Yeah. And get police on the phone to come quick. And then I would be running my ass back to my wife. Right. That's what I would do. Yeah. I just cannot imagine leaving my beloved alone that way. I well, now, and I, I know can, that. I just can't see myself being anything but like embarrassingly vocal. Just saying wild, outlandish craziness because I need people to pay attention now. Right. Like overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> like that. I'm just picturing like in a movies, you know over the top. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, but really, you know, I know everybody sh- handles shock differently, but, but a doctor, you know, you yeah. see somebody and you just jog on by right. down a random no-name road. I mean, I, he, I just don't get this scene. And if I didn't know what I already know 
about him or, you know, what's been, you know, tried under the law about him, uh, I would just already be suspicious at any rate. Officer Paul Fitzpatrick arrived and Dirk Grinader took him to the scene. The paramedics arrived and Grinader was sent back to the parking area to await further news. He eventually told officers and paramedics a story of how he left his wife to go after the dog and then the dog came upon the bludgeoned wife or something like that. It was only after a while that Dr. Grinder asked if his wife was dead or alive. He was told that, unfortunately, your wife is dead. Grinder then asks the officer, are you going to arrest me? That's weird. What? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, just that's what? a weird reaction to have with police. <laughs> you know, this is this is where I want to you know, just reflect on how our brain sometimes says things that we think we're merely thinking, but we realize we just said what we said. So anyway, one of the points Dr. Grinder kept trying to drive home to the responding law enforcement who had come to the murder scene was that he tried to find a pulse in the neck of his downed wife, but her throat was slashed and it was so bloody. In fact, Grinder had blood all over him. He admitted to trying to lift her, but she was too heavy. He did everything he could to save his wife's life, but he worried that she was dead. Now, one of the officers' name was Marty Foley, who was a Massachusetts state trooper. And at this stage, he didn't know what he was walking into. But he asked Grinder to tell him what happened, and he gave a few differing accounts, but they weren't too differing. Foley did observe blood on Dr. Grinder, except for his hands. Foley asked him about how he went about checking his wife's pulse without getting any blood on his hands from her gaping throat gash. And there was no answer forthcoming, Caroline. <sighs> Grinder, he didn't have an answer for that. Well, I think we, yeah, this is not <laughs> looking good. <laughs> right. But yeah, clean hands and a bloody body does seem a little noteworthy under the circumstances. I mean, Foley must be thinking what could be going on in a situation like this. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know that he might be wondering if Dr. Grinder was maybe wearing gloves. And if so, where were they? Where are the gloves? And um, so, you know, he asked him, were you wearing gloves? And Grinder's like, didn't answer him. Um, and does it ever pay to talk to homicide investigators? So I kind of want to see things through Greiniger's point of view, not answering. That's probably pretty smart. It's suspicious, but it's smarter than the earlier blabbing that he did, such as, are you going to arrest me? Well, and I think it's always smart to exercise the rights available to you. I do think that's perhaps, I don't know, I don't know culturally who does that better, but um, I know the French are into it. Like if you got a right, you need to be consistently exercising it every day. <laughs> so if your right is to remain yes, silent. Yes, other countries it. probably wonder why are you ever going to talk to police? <laughs> Next, Dirk Greinecker was driven to the police station. So he's in the car, they're driving him. And when they got there, they they want his clothes. Dirk said, I want a lawyer. 
I think that's a very smart move on his part myself. And his lawyer did come immediately to the station. And after consulting with Grindinger, now called client, the lawyer urged officers to see his client as being cooperative. So um, now all law enforcement wanted at this point was his clothes. So while Grindinger was waiting for the whole clothing situation to be sorted out, he called his youngest daughter. Yeah, he's calling because he's got nothing on his hands. Anyway, his youngest daughter's name is Britt, and she made her way to the station. But before Britt saw her father, he sat alone in a room with a junior detective called uh, named uh, Jill McDermott. So, okay, so look, Britt's on the way, and now she's arrived, but she doesn't see her father immediately because he's sitting alone in a room with a junior detective named Jill McDermott. There was no questioning, of course, with the lawyer out of the room waiting for Britt, but out of the silence, Dr. Grinder said a peculiar thing to Detective McDermott, kind of like an aside, and he said, I'm thinking all these crazy things. I mean, again, this is, this is a sudden utterance. This is not questioning. This is just, I'm thinking all these crazy things, Dr. Grinder said. Again, the brain is pushing him to talk. He probably should not be doing that. Mm -hmm. But like this morning, this morning May gave me a back rub. So you're going to find my skin under her fingernails. Who oh, says stuff like that? Nobody says stuff like that. Like even detectives don't say stuff like that. <laughs> what are you doing? Well... I mean, this McDermott woman must have just been thinking, "Gross!" I just hit the mother load yeah. without even trying. <laughs> then daughter Britt came forth into the room where her dad was with Detective McDermott, and she blurted to her father, "What happened between you and Mom today? Did something happen? Why do fuck?" up things always happen to our family? Why do these psychotic, unexplained things happen to our family? Dang. Britt was the That's right what one she to said. call? I wonder what the other kids would have said. <laughs> Shut up, sis. <laughs> I Shut mean, up, you know, when you have three kids, they all bring something to the table. Britt's apparently the responsible one, and that's what she chose to say. <laughs> God. Just, I mean, just so she time. takes after her dad. She's a blurter, and yeah. then she's quiet. Then she's a blurter. Then she's quiet. Plus, anyway, I mean, and I'm a fa I'm one of three kids in a family, you know, and we had a loving family, which isn't to say you and dad didn't have fights, but like that's not oh, necessarily yeah, something did. I wouldn't have said. Like this family's so messed up. I mean, who doesn't say stuff like that? So, but but the Very context true. here is different. You know, your your mother is bloody dead, and your dad is the suspect. Like it's probably not the smartest place to say it, but it's not an, I don't think it's an odd thing for a family member to say, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and a lot of it depends on her relationship with her dad. I mean, she may be totally into blaming her dad for everything bad that happens to the family. Right. And uh, who knows, but I think you're right. I mean, we're not going to put too much weight on that. Anyway, sniffer dogs have been brought in to the crime scene, and they caught a scent on a little paved road. They hit on a catch basin that was secreting a unique hammer, a brass-handled knife, under one brown work glove. 
The hammer was a type of sledgehammer, and it was bloody. The knife was bloody. Both looked new. So I'm kind of thinking right now that investigators and detectives are feeling like some major pieces of the puzzle are in hand. They probably feel like the whole scene is gelling around Dr. Dirk Reinader, and not because he's the husband, not because he's the last person to see May alive, or because he's the first person to find her dead, but because they have those witnesses, Keir, who saw him veer off the parking lot from where May was to this little road where the murder weapons were disposed. Keir would have no way of knowing what meaning to assign to this strange behavior. But of course, investigators know what meaning to assign to that strange behavior. A man's wife is murdered and he takes a little jaunt, a little tour away from a phone that is in his car and people are approaching. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense unless, unless, of course, you know, he's going to ditch the evidence. About this time, Foley was certainly thinking that May's husband was trying to frame it as yet another strike by a serial killer with a penchant for bludgeoning old people in the vicinity. And there had actually been some random killings in that area of late. So, in other words, investigators are thinking, so this husband is trying to capitalize on this fearful thing that's happening in the community and make it look like another strike by this unknown suspect. Yeah. I, you know, I just want to say right there for law enforcement, I am always impressed because I, I don't have the brain capacity to understand what it would be like to come upon a scene, you know, cause you have your protocols and your procedures for gathering evidence, no matter what that happens. But the whole time you have to be, looking to capture all potential scenarios because you're going to have to run those down and either squash them as non-viable or supporting evidence, right? So, yeah, wow. You know, it's just hard with all these elements and everybody convincing you of things. And we've seen it. Law enforcement can get fooled just like the rest of us. And they have the science to back up what they're doing. So I just, I appreciate law enforcement. You have a tough job every time. Yeah, I do too. And, um, you know, I think it takes a long, long time to understudy a seasoned detective to even be able to put your mind in that frame where you're looking at evidence. You're not looking at a dead body. You're not looking at a husband, a wife. You're not looking at any of that. You're looking at evidence. And Unfortunately for Dirk, he is uttering things that become evidentiary. Consciousness of guilt is what they're going to call it at trial, probably. I wasn't there, but it wasn't televised. And so anyway, but back to the family that has produced this scene. Grinder had a niece named Belinda Markle. She's the daughter of May's sister, Ilsa Stark, and her husband, Murray Stark. Now, Belinda arrived at the Grinder home, and her uncle Dirk said some very strange things to her. He suddenly offered that, quote, "Uh, we had intercourse yesterday morning, and there's nothing wrong with that because we're married, end quote. Well, it's an inappropriate thing to say to your, like, quasi-niece. That's a weird thing to say. (laughs) Yeah, that's your niece. 
And you're, where is that coming from within the frame of she's even at your house for the sole purpose of trying to console the family? And you say that? It's so weird. He also said May gave him a back rub before the walk and therefore his skin would be under her fingernails. And he told police this and he told his niece, I'm frightened. They're going to be looking at me, he said. Uh, they're going to be looking at you, Dr. Reininger, because you're making them, you know, immediately think it had to be you based on evidence. Yeah. Anyway, but I, uh, Caroline, I don't know. In this story right now, I'm asking myself why Dr. Reininger would murder his wife in such a public place in broad daylight. I think he sees himself as in charge of everything, like everything. He's in charge. If he wants it and he imagines it, it will happen the way he wants. Now, let's look at his past. He's a brilliant, gifted man. Yeah. And he has had open doors before him. And he is so smart, he's able to help these people who are children and their parents and they're frantic and they need help. And he's always there and has earned kind of the 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 uh, moniker of Holy Grail. Yeah. The Holy Grail. So <laughs> he's thinking, okay, I'm a Holy Grail. So I'm in charge of everything. If I have an idea to murder May at the park this morning, it came into my head. And so therefore... It's a perfect thought. So sometimes what I'm pointing out here is that really smart killers, they give themselves up by thinking that there's no possible way that this is not a perfect murder. Right. Well, thankfully. Because I'm perfect. Yeah. Thankfully, they think that way because it's often how they get caught. I'm with you. This person's life story up to this point has really you know it's robbed him of some kind of like of that external sort of self-reflection maybe or self-analysis because this is brazen if you piece the elements together like you said broad daylight middle of the day really affluent park and neighborhood you know you got a dog you got other bystanders around and then you're saying weird things to people it's just it's weird you clearly there's family dynamics that are just going to be like everybody others with what Brett said. I, I don't actually think that's odd that families are like, why are we so messed up? No, I mean, everything until you put it in the context of all these other things. That but are going until on. you, yes, until it's in the investigative room where your dad's accused of murdering and he's bloody up and down except for his hands, the ones he used to check her pulse. I mean, it's just a weird, it's pretty bad, but I have it, to assume. It is, you know. He's like, I just want to tell Dr. Grinder, not that I want to tell him how to get away with murdering his wife, May. Right. But I do want to point out to him, look, Dirk, (laughs) as a man of science, you're not going to be at your best when you're working with infinite unknowns of what other people outside of your control are going to be doing. Just a thought. Yeah. (laughs) Just a side note. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, he could have read a book, How to Get Away with Murder. Yeah, they should probably stop writing anyway. those. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> Back at the Grinader's home, May's sister, Ilsa Stark, has arrived. Dr. Grinader insisted she call her husband Greg to find a lawyer. He sure is going to need one, he tells her. 
he's in a panic that they have his pants. He claims he, he has glove fibers all over the house. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's saying the weirdest thing. I don't see myself ever uttering the sentence, I have glove fibers all over my house. You can't be Unless that direct. my dog is called glove fibers. You, you have to indirectly connect that evidence back to a logical excellent. You can't directly do it. <laughs> Sounds weird. He then pronounced to her that he and May had mutual spontaneous nosebleeds Sunday morning before the walk and they shared a Kleenex. He goes on and on and on about the joint Kleenex usage and now he fears police will find it in his car and the blood slash snot on the Kleenex. He's just terrified about that. And there's a towel in there. A joint nosebleed associated towel, Caroline. I mean, what are they going to do with that? Oh, my God. Okay. In my mind, okay, okay. I've stumbled upon my spouse's bloody body. I don't scream at anyone. I'm not screaming at all. And in fact, instead of hollering to the hilt about who, what psycho has done this to me in my life, I think about the odd random pieces of evidence they are now going to find against me. Nope. Does not line up with human, human response. And you know what gets me? This man is crying preemptive reasons why the evidence is what it is instead of tears. Right. Like, why isn't he up? He's worried about himself. (laughs) He should be laying down on the floor and just saying, I don't care what happens to me at this point. My life is over. My My beautiful wife, my wonderful wife, my soulmate, my the biggest part of my heart is lying bleeding to death. She's dead in the woods, in the park, and I'm just crying and crying. Dr. Grinder has no tears crying. And uh, every time he opens his mouth, he says something else preposterous to try to get him off the hook. And these are the statements that are going to get him on the hook, including when they come out at trial. Yeah. So anyway. Friends and neighbors described the Grinder couple as a couple that are devoted to each other, always together. The family was known as focused and high achieving and very involved in their children's lives. They walked around hand in hand with each other. Uh, and I want to say to you, all of you in Wellesley, is that love or is that coercive control? really hard. You never know until somebody's murdered. Well, that's it. I actually just watched, as a side note, The Vow, which is this HBO special on the Nexium Nexium cult. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that poses this very question. Where does this line come in where you've manipulated someone into losing their personal control of themselves? Yeah, absolutely. In 1998, May went back to work and started a master's degree. Now, if there's a course of control going on in that house, Caroline, Dirk's not going to like that. Nope. She funded her own facelift. Not going to like that. And bought nice clothes for herself, which was really new. May was more of a jeans and sweatshirt kind of a gal until 1998. She was heading in a new look and she was heading in a new direction. So to me, that's evidence. I agree. Anyway, it's it's circumstantial evidence, but very strong that when you look at it through the prism of the 
remarks he's making, no blood on the hands, yeah. you know, running around like a chicken with his head cut off. And now he's pleading with his family about, we had intercourse, which is okay because you're, we're married and you'll they find got my pants. Off. Now they're going to find Where? the Kleenex. Yeah. Weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it is weird. May's sister, Urs, uh, Ilsa, said that Dirk Grinder would get mad if May bought a $400 plane ticket to come home from visiting her dying mother when she could ride the train for a cheaper fare. Oh, gross. So Dirk, Dirk is a controller. Yeah, that's one of those weird... You won't be able to convince me that he's not over something like that. Yeah. I mean, this is a man who has got paychecks coming in from every direction. Right. And he Rise will not really. let his wife fly home. He's making her take the train. And she's she's flying to go see her dying mother. Well, and if she could have funded her own facelift she probably could have bought her own plane ticket too so so is that the case like she spent her money on this plane ticket and he's pissed because he thinks there's a better option that's cheaper i mean the whole thing screams yeah weird controlling what do you care she's visiting her dying mom don't you want to support her here's something really sad caroline until she died may's mother was sending may money every month that makes me feel so bad for may Oh my gosh, she was trapped. Oh, she was trapped. Oh. Is so anyone what? feeling sorry for Dirk Grinder? Well, it might depend on how much they really know him. And soon the police would come to his door and they would have a warrant for a search and seizure of anything of evidentiary value. That means computers. And soon also police find out that Dr. Gers- Dirk Grinder is leading a double life in which he has another name. Oh, my gosh. So now we're opening a whole new door to a paradise of clues Mm -hmm. and insight into Dr. Grinder. Oh, excuse me. His his identity here is Thomas Young. Oh, my goodness. Thomas Young. (laughs) Why does that Young word leap out at me? Freudian. As Freudian, yes. You <laughs> said it. You just nailed you it. You said it. Well, Tommy wants to be a young one again. <laughs> and that's the name he was using to create new credit cards, and he was checking into hotel rooms. What? That's oh, God. Elaborate. And no wonder May couldn't spend 20 cents on a bag of chips. I mean, that's one really elaborate. Line, it's very elaborate. Yeah. He was spending all the money on... These kinds of things. And online, his username is so disgusting. Yeah, Online, his username is pussyrider at yahoo.com. Yahoo, let's have some standards. And and sometimes casual guy 2000. Oh, when he's not being a total predator? His mind is... (laughs) I mean, he uses different monikers. Casual guy doesn't really evoke anything to me. But that other one is, it's not evocative. It is a huge neon sign with an arrow. Yeah. Blinking, you know. Yep. Uh, and he uses that different na- different monikers for wherever he's hunting. So if he's hunting for refined people, mm. he might go and say casual guy 2000, 
Woo-hoo. Interesting. Or and remember, it's not even two thousand yet. This is all going on prior to two thousand. Right. So maybe he's a two thousand times strength casual guy, or I'm living for the future casual guy. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? That's a good point, though. Obviously, once the glove was found in the catch basin connected to the small paved road that Dirk Grinder was seen swiftly going to right after he exited the murder scene, investigators were keen on finding the other glove. Ultimately, on November 1st, the mate to the glove found in the catch basin with the murder weapon was found. This glove was found in a catch basin near the gate to Morris's Pond area, very close to where Dr. Grindinger parked his van the day of the murder. It, too, tested positive for the presence of blood, just like the other items found. F. Deal & Son, a hardware store in Wellesley, is the only store in Massachusetts, east of Springfield, that sells those particular gloves. Oh, no way. <laughs> wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. When police entered the Grinder home with a search warrant on November 12th, they did take his computers for examination, but they also found an identical pair of gloves on November 12th from a doghouse behind the defendant's Wellesley home. This hardware store, Caroline, also sells S-Wing two-pound drilling hammers, which is not a popular model. A drilling hammer is like a mini sledgehammer designed to work in the breaking of granite. Uh, I'm harking back to what they found in that first catch basin, the what they called a a sledgehammer of yeah. sorts. Yeah. And then the other hammer, I mean the the um the other glove. The other glove, yeah. While executing the search warrant at the home on November 12, police seized a deals sales receipt for nails purchased at 8.55 a.m. on September 3rd, 1999. Deals records indicated that an S-Wing two-pound drilling hammer was purchased three minutes later at the same cash register. Huh. So, okay. What is yeah, walk me through that one. Well, okay, I'll pretend to be Dirk if I can. I don't know. He's out there, but <laughs> I'll get try. Your real hard thinking cap on there, Ma. <laughs> okay. All right. So let me get this. Let me get this. I'm Dirk Grinder, renowned Holy Grail. Dr. Holy. You just call me Dr. Holy. Holy. Or Pussy Rider or Casual Guy <laughs> 2000. Holy, holy, thank you. All right. Seriously, I'm Dirk. I buy nails on September 3rd. 1999 at Deals Hardware Store, where, by the way, my wife and I are regular customers. Anyway, I'm at the cash register and I buy the nails. Three minutes later, after I leave the cash register, another purchase is made at the same cash register of a very low demand S-Wing two-pound drilling hammer, the same rare type hammer used to kill May Grinder. And by the way, Deals was the only place that stocked that drilling hammer. So, no, that's not going to happen. That's too coincidental. But well, who do you think? You know, I'm Dirk, and that's what I'm going to claim. But who do you think bought it? Who do you think? Do you think he paid some person random in the street? Hey, go buy this 
hammer right after I buy these nails? Or do you think that he somehow was like, oh, whoops, forgot to include this. And the guy just made it happen to where no one's going to remember, right? Because they found the receipt for the nails, but the no. I'm just curious how he did that and what the methodology was there because it's premeditated, I think. I do too. And I think that he was maybe just, you know, go, uh, uh, it could have been that he was buying the nails to, uh, go through the, the facade of, hi, uh, you know, everybody's saying hi, Dirk. It's kind of like cheers, you know, they know him in the hardware store and then get that out of the way. And now I'm going to circle back and get that drilling hammer and they're not going to even think about it because I'm no longer just stepping into the store. Yeah. Or I have this receipt for my purchase. So when they ask about my purchase, they, it won't come out that there were two. Yeah. I I mean, I'm, I'm always flummoxed when people have receipts. I can never find a receipt. I'm in the habit of throwing away receipts. I even tell people... They're now asking, do you want a receipt? No, thanks. Mainly because I use everything on my credit card to get points. Yeah. I mean, then I pay it off. So you have uh, plenty of receipts already. <laughs> and, I, and I've and i got a receipt that way. I yeah. mean, that I, think, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think it's weird, playful activity for him to have the receipt for the nails and, and not. not for the... But yeah, I mean, I do think that the probability of that happening... Uh, is very, very low. Yeah. Uh, and I find it very impressive that investigators took an open box of plastic bags from the grinder's home and they tested it for evidence. It turned out that the plastic bags found at the crime scene came off the same roll of plastic as the bags seized from Grinder's home. I've already mentioned that Dr. Dirk Grinder was well known for being exacting and fastidious. He was able to hold command over his entire family in this way, maybe. I think so. Yeah. Can you even imagine what he would be feeling, thinking, and doing as he watched his computers, his dog gloves, his his dog gloves. Now, by dog gloves, I mean uh, they were taking everything, including the gloves he wore to walk his dogs, including the gloves that they found in the doghouse out back. I mean, you know, he's just having probably wet in his pants. But, you know, even the plastic bags were seized by police, bagged and tagged, and now they're going to be put under a murder microscope. Dirk Grinder is not going to have it in him to handle something like that. And um, I, if it was me and I was that far out of my range, that far over my head, I'm just going to confess right there. And I'm just going to say I was guilty. And can we please just keep me off the front page of the newspaper? That's all I ask. But that's not what he did. He persuaded his sister-in-law, Ilsa, to have her husband find him an attorney. He eventually hired one and provided a retainer to well-respected attorney, Marty Murphy. Then Grinder started what he was calling his defense fund drive. This man is going to start a defense fund drive. He started hitting up family members, May's family, mind you, for money. He asked doctors, professors, researchers, everyone in his 
Orbit got an urgent plea from him to pony up. It was, quote, us against stupid police who always pinned on the husband, end quote. His attorney said a half million would get the ball rolling to defend him. A half million dollars. Sounds like something an attorney would say. Oh, just half, half your... Well, if I'm going to look at this man's, you know, portfolio, I'm probably going to ask for at least that. Well, up course, to this, this point, is, yeah. I mean, the things... Yeah, I mean, today's of- money, it'd probably be about three million. He even commanded his niece, Belinda, to mortgage her apartment. His niece, Belinda, you need to mortgage your apartment. She later disclosed to investigators that she was thinking, when he said that to her, she was thinking, here he is. He's got a medical practice. He teaches at Harvard. He researches and he publishes. He lives in Wellesley. His three high-achieving kids are grown out and out of the house. And I need to mortgage my apartment for him to have a world-class lawyer. I have young children and I don't even have a lot of money. Yeah. This guy is so weird to me. I mean, the dynamics are very weird to me. I would be interested to get a little bit more of a glimpse into all of the dynamics between the direct close-knit family and then the extended families here. Because Belinda, I mean, it's clear that they're involved with each other, as families often are. But that she's right. She's framing that entirely right. You got your own kids. Like, why do I have to do anything besides show up and say, sorry for your luck? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't get that either. That's crazy. I don't get it either. Um, but I really like this aspect of this family dynamic when it comes to what Dirk Grinder expects. Yeah. From his family. Yeah. I believe this is a huge insight into an entitled man. For sure. I believe that, well, I just have to be totally honest. I wonder what it's like to be entitled like that. Yeah, right. There are times when I give things away because I'm thinking, well, you know, this other Entity needs it more than I do. Right. I mean, you know, we all do that. Oh, We're yeah. not entitled to really anything no, if yeah, you think I'm, about it. I'm the opposite of this guy. I'm like, well, how am I going to do all oh, this yeah. all by myself? <laughs> I mean, Dirk, on the other hand, what would it be like to be him? I can't imagine. I can just tell you what he did. Basically, he's saying, here are your assignments. Yeah. You. Go find me a lawyer. You, 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 and you give me some money for my lawyer. And you, young person in my life that I never really talk to, unless I'm claiming that it's okay to have sex with my wife. That's that's not incriminating. Belinda, poor Belinda, you know, you need to mortgage your apartment. God. Yeah. So now I want to go back to Dr. Grinder's alternative identity, Thomas Young, um, because I I just need to meet this fellow. Number one, he is spending the Grinders into the poorhouse. Now, remember, Grinder handles all the family finances. That's no, that's no, uh, that's no surprise. To his credit, he and May spent about $400,000 to help their three children get through Harvard, Yale, and and pre-med. So that's good. That's a lot of money to let go of when you're uh, dirt. 
So actually, that doesn't seem like a lot of money for three kids in those schools. So I'm guessing there were also scholarships, internships, and student loans. There must have been. But still, okay, $400,000 can be on account of um, their education. But Dirk in Disguise of Thomas had expensive and extracurricular activities going on. For example, some of the grinder money was going to hire sex workers at $500 per hour plus the cost of posh Boston and New York hotel suites. Wow. Okay. That was with that Yahoo account he had? (laughs) Yeah. And all those credit cards that he took out under Thomas's name. That's kind of shocking to me. That's a level of, I mean, it's one thing to make an email account or go to porn sites and like make this other Thomas, but but you have created a life when you're opening credit cards. Like that's crazy. Yeah. Dirk Grinder, again, you know, I'm going to put myself in his place. I love myself so much. I love myself so much. What am I going to do? Because I'm just, I'm just doing everything I do is so great. I feel like I need, there needs to be two of me. (laughs) And that leads him. Yeah, there needs to be two of me. I'm going to call him something, something young. Yeah. Wants to be young. No, that's too obvious. How about Thomas Young? I mean, I'm just making that up. But that's what's going on here. And Dirk is in love with this Thomas guy, who is him, because he's given him all this money. All these credit cards. He never did that for May. So, I mean, to me, that is just an interesting twist. He loves himself so much that he can't contain it within one identity called Dirk. Yeah. He's got to create another identity to spin this family into oblivion. So anyway, while chastising May for taking an airline to see her dying mother and not take, and, and you know, uh, telling her, why didn't you take the train to save money? Thomas Young was putting together meetups on several websites that would get him into threesomes. He would put it out there. Thomas Young would put it out there. I'm not in a position to host at my house, but I can pay for a meetup in a comfortable upscale motel for the three of us. And just to show you where his head and his heart and various other body parts were just that one day after his wife was murdered, Dirk Greiniger, posing as Thomas Young, was interacting with a sex worker the day after his wife's murder. Okay, that's pretty bad. I think that's the most condemning. That means you have zero feeling. Zero feeling. Dr. Greiniger, Caroline, was also a creative writer. He was authoring many short stories on his computer featuring triple X rated sexual exploits and fetishes of a very busy character called Tom. Oh my gosh. Do you think he would sell the whole facade of Tom Young as just character research? (laughs) You think he was trying to do like maybe a tax write-off? Yeah, that's what I would do. Anyway. Dr. Kreiniger appears to have a strong fetish or addiction or something to this alternative identity and sexual fantasies made true, and he's hiding it from the perfectly organized and controlled life he has built for himself, his wife, and his three brilliant children. Don't forget the community that he's in. Don't forget all the people who work in his office. I mean, he's just leading a double life. And like any addiction, his Thomas Young alter identity 
escapades appear to have taken over his life and apparently his mind, Caroline. Yeah. Okay. This, okay. I do want to touch on a couple things I'm connecting here. So his wife, and this is really common, I think for the ages, right? Like I'm 42 and I, you know, you do, you get in these spaces in your life line and you just, you do kind of want to change yourself for sometimes no other reason than just to get back in love with yourself or to change just to like reinvigorate your life. So I don't oh, think change it, can be very invigorating. Oh, totally. Candy. Yeah. Passion, new direction, all the things. So I get it. Now his wife, and it can have friction in a marriage because you're both doing it differently, right? At the same time. So that can be, it can feel weird. It can feel scary. It can feel all the things because you're like, well, what are you going to end up? Are we going to still end up together maybe or whatever the questions that come up. But so his wife's over there doing, trying to break free in all reality. Let's be real. May is trying to break free a little bit here, get herself on her own feet so she can make her own choices moving forward. Absolutely. She's reinventing herself. That's right. And we don't, and it doesn't look to me like it's got any skew of not wanting to be with her husband in the end of it. It's just that that often happens and it can create friction in that. You know, a marriage can survive a lot if both parties are growing and changing. They don't have to grow and change in the same direction. But they just have to respect to be interesting to one another and to be a companion to the other, unless you're a dominator. Well, and I wonder if a little of this that he walked himself into here was intentional or was a little bit of a retaliatory, well, oh yeah, I can do it too. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to, na 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 And yeah, Thomas Young, because I'm young too. And I, I wonder how much of this was born directly out of his eventual desire to kill his wife or his desire to sort of like, I'll show you in that normal way that people do in a, in a marriage when they're, they feel as though their spouse is slipping from them or growing away from them, right? I just, this is interesting yeah. to me. This book. Well, he, Dr. Grinder has such grandiose thoughts about himself that he can create another person and he can fund that person to do all the things that he, in his perfect life, cannot do out loud anyway, or in, you know, can't be honest about it. So if you've got the mind that can go that far um, to create another persona, well, then I don't think it's a major leap to say that in that same mind, I can also destroy a person. Yeah. And I don't mean destroy my alter ego. I mean, destroy this person who is getting in the way. I don't want to be with anymore. Right. They're getting in the I way. I want of to my be new... with these other people. Yeah. So, I mean, again, is this what entitlement looks like? I don't know. But I can't help but wonder how such a strong, long, controlled train can fly off the track like this and destroy everything that he has built. That is very perplexing to me. I agree. On a simpler line of questioning, how the hell does one man maintain a busy medical practice, a clinic, research, Harvard professional role, and have the energy and enthusiasm for a very active and intense alter ego who is actually out there with a credit card meeting people in five-star hotels? I'm, I don't, can't, I got no explanation there other than what we've already said. He's just He's just gone too far. Some people speculate that May found out about his secret life 
and threatened to expose him to his children, his colleagues, and his community. And I, I just don't know if I buy into that. I, w- I wish I knew if she knew. Why would she go on a walk with him like normal if she did? Wouldn't she just leave? She's got a job. She's in school. Wouldn't she just want to get her credentials and then divorce, taking half the value of whatever was left? But anyway, that, those are my thoughts about her because May is on my mind right now. I feel so bad for how he, she, she, he was treating her mm-hmm. um, up to and including him killing her. Well, yeah. So back th- to the bare bones. My th- well, my thought was like, you're right. Did did she really find out? Because I feel like she would have told her family members too that we would have had a more inkling about her. I I feel like she's just living a normal life where she feels like they're going into the fa- the empty nest phase of their life. Don't you? Right. Yeah. Not only that, but she she just seems like a lovely person, right? And not a prying controlling person. Yeah. Um, in July 12th, 1998, Grinder opened a corporate credit account using the name of a college classmate he had not seen in 30 years. Remember, May and Ilsa's mother were May and Ilsa's mother, who was dying, and the two sisters were traveling with May to try to be near her as much as possible. Obviously, Grinder had to stop May from traveling on airplanes when she could travel back and forth by train because he needed this money. And he's running two lives. And May only had the one. And it was really devoted to her mother at that point. In October 10, October 10, 1999, the defendant opened an internet account under the username pussyrider at yahoo.com. During the week before the murder, the defendant opened an internet account under the username casualguy2000. He then opened an account with an online dating service under under that name. On October 25th, 1999, Caroline, this is just a few days before the murder, he sent messages to two users seeking a discreet relationship and mutual petting and more. Wow. Mutual petting and more. Jeez. Well, and like you said, At- six days before the mur- the actual murder. That's crazy. Yeah, and what does mutual petting and more mean? Does he mean getting to third base? Yeah, in 1932. More? Who says petting? <laughs> Who says mutual petting? Listen, buddy, <laughs> if you're purchasing sex acts. You don't have to talk about things like mutual petting. Right. And I don't want to school him, but you know, I mean, uh, come it's on. weird. He, this man is definitely socially awkward. It's a good Does he to want to it. start a new family? I mean, <laughs> I he's acting like a teenager. <laughs> maybe Grinder or Thomas Young or whoever, maybe both. I don't know. I admit, I do not know any secret life protocols. Maybe he maybe he just doesn't know what he wanted and he knew that he wanted whatever he could get. He wanted to have something that he didn't have or couldn't have or had been blocked out or I just can't imagine and I don't think anybody can say what was really going on with this man. Uh what I do know is that he has some vague notions about his age. 
because he described himself as age 49 in one message and age 59 in another. And for the record, he was 59 at the time he opened these accounts. So on October 25th and 26th, 1999, just days before the murder of his wife, May, May, I'm thinking about you, Dr. Dirk Greider, posing as Thomas Young, exchanged graphic electronic mail messages, emails, with two couples, plus nude photographs with one couple, negotiating for discreet sexual relations as a threesome. He said he could not host, but he was willing to cover hotel expenses, and he described himself as age 49. Better pack your Viagra, buddy. Around this time, May's computer crashed, and as a result, she used her husband's computer to prepare papers for courses she was taking. And I know that feeling. You have to get this paper done in your next class, and the computer crashes. I mean, I would be coming to your house, Caroline, so just so you know. Oh, I immediately write the professor, oh, <laughs> the most stupid technology. <laughs> I would be in a mini panic. I would start calling friends and nearby relatives to borrow their computer and printer, but May didn't do that. There's May's husband's computer right freaking there, Caroline. Yeah, so she used his computer. Big deal. Totally what I would call normal. Yeah. And then on October 29th, a worker who was renovating a bathroom in their home heard the defendant ask his wife if she had been using his computer. And it wasn't real sweet either. It was loud. So revered, well-respected Dr. Dirk Grinder is doing secret illicit, illicit Thomas Young stuff incognito out in the world, spending lots of money. And at the same time, the portal to his activity resides in his computer at his home that May is definitely not supposed to use or touch. So according to the worker in their house, the discussion of, did you use my computer, was very heated. My guess is that Dirk was heated. He was the one who was heated. I don't know that May would argue with him after more than 30 years of knowing arguing doesn't work with this man. And, you know, I'm just reading into this marriage that she is just going to take the the, the least offensive uh, path to get him to calm down. And in my mind, May was just so used to getting beat down at this point. Remember, she's starting to grow some wings, Caroline. Mm -hmm. She's financed her own facelift and a new stylish wardrobe update. Maybe she found evidence on of Thomas Young that day. Maybe not. She got her paper out, and that's what mattered to her. She probably doesn't give two shits about what her husband is doing, honestly. No, and she probably wouldn't have thought about it until he made such a big stink. I mean, that's the only thing a big stink about that kind of stuff is going to do. It's going to make right, the other person right. go, why are they so angry? Yeah. What's on here? Of course, they did go on that walk together. I don't think he was dragging her. No. So I'm not sure she knew anything. And yeah. She was a very forgiving person probably, too. So this overheard kerfuffle over Dirk's computer was two days before her murder. So it's evidence as far as police are concerned. It's a piece of the puzzle, a valid, viable motive. And you know they they don't have to they don't have to prove motive, but it helps the jury piece the puzzle together. What we do know is that Grinder masquerading as Thomas arranged to meet a particular local sex worker at a hotel in the spring of 1999. It Appears he really liked her because he telephoned her about six months later in September and expressed a desire to see her again. But the sex worker said that Thomas 
quote, air quotes, Thomas, seemed confused when they met in the spring. So she suggested he not see her until he first found him some peace. Now that's P-E-A-C-E, Caroline. So she's just, you know, she's got plenty of customers. She doesn't need somebody who's whimpering and whining about, what do I do? Should I touch you here? This was a high-end service provider, no doubt, because Grinder telephoned her escort service on October 30th and again on November 1, the days immediately before and after his wife's murder, but she did not speak to him. Wow. I like this lady. I like her. Yeah, but she's got good instincts. For sure. Thomas is just, the whole thing is just weird. This doctor's weird. I'm weirded out. Well, it's out there. It's way, way out there. Thomas Young activities aren't the only evidence police had collected that pointed to Dr. Dirk Grindinger as the only possible suspect in the savage attack and murder of May Grindinger on October 30th, Sunday morning, uh, 1999. On Monday, May 21st, 2001, 18 months after May Greininger's vicious murder, her husband, Dr. Dirk Greininger, was the defendant in a jury trial for the premeditated capital murder of his wife. Yay! He had two things going for him, in my opinion. He was a well-respected allergist, beloved and acclaimed, not just locally, but nationally. And his children were shouting from the rooftops to anyone who would listen that there's just no way on earth this loving and supportive family man and attentive dad would hurt their mother. He loved her. His children, Britt, Colin, and Kirsten, were front row center directly behind the defense throughout the duration of the trial with defense attorney Marty Murphy and Dr. Grinder at the table. These three accomplished adult children of Dirk and May Grinder were 100% behind their father. Really? They wanted him to know that they wanted the jury to know that their father was a loving husband and a father who would never have killed their mother. And that's the second time I have said that, isn't it? They really were insistent he would never do that. Yeah, but would um, Thomas Young do it? Because <laughs> right. maybe that's how he got it done. I don't know. Caroline, some of Grinder's family were sitting behind the prosecutor in this case. His niece, Brittany, and her mother, May's sister, Ilsa, were going to give testimony for the prosecution. I find the most interesting aspects of this case are the ways in which this secret double sex-fueled life of Grinder, including his activities under the name Thomas Young, were handled. The judge decided only the week leading up to the crime would be admissible for the jury to hear. Not the years during which Grinder first spent megabucks on phone sex after his wife was not having sex with him anymore, and not the many events of seeking out sex workers and escort services, and not the grow answering of ads for threesomes and other hookups. Now, I kind of get that, that yeah. you're not allowed to bring in prior back bad acts. Yeah, I agree. And yet, he did let the week leading up to the murder. Well, cause and I think that was probably a pretty good compromise. Yeah. Cause there's gotta, I even can tell there's a bit of a shift here. I don't know when, but killing his wife wasn't always on the docket when he created, it started down this road of creating an alternate. I, I don't know that this doctor always wanted to kill his wife, but I think it was more recent that it became 
a problem. So it seems to me a good balance to say just the week. This was just a tool. Thomas was just a tool that doctor was using to get what he wanted, right? Yes. I think that it is likely that he and his wife did have a dispute over the computer. She did find something. They had a long discussion about it. And they decided that, you know, either let's separate, but let's still be friends and strong together um, for for our children and our grandchildren to come. I mean, maybe they were walking to the park to put the seal on the deal that they were now going to kind of go their separate ways, but that's okay. We've had a good run. And, and then he murdered her uh, because he didn't want her to change her mind about her attitude toward this. He didn't want her to find out that they were broke. He didn't want her to find out that, um, you know, and go to the public with his real identity. And But too late, you killed her, and that got you exactly what you did not want, Kurt, yeah. Dirk, whoever, Thomas Guy. Young. <laughs> uh, I mean, this man was hungry, and that hunger grew and grew over a long period of time. So, I mean, to me, it seems as if he was thinking, well, I did this and it's bad. So in for a dime, in for a dollar. And at the time of his wife's death, he was in for thousands of those dollars with real life sex partners that had professional expertise in the profession of sex workers and sex work, people who commanded big bucks by the hour and a ritzy place to work in at the customer's expense. So he's he's just going to be pretending for the rest of his life because, you know, why not? But then after the judge had limited the prosecution's testimony about his illicit, illicit double life, the defense put Dirk Grinder on the stand where the accused told the entire story of his descent into pornography, phone sex, sex workers, chat rooms, naked pictures, and hookups. Now, Over and over and over and over again, Caroline. If someone with severe, grandiose self-love, you might call it narcissism, but I'm not a doctor, so I can't say that he's a narcissist. But how many times do these kinds of killers insist that they get up on the oh witness stand because they're so charming? They they're just so they fucking charming. Amazingly charming. Yes. <laughs> Now, can you imagine the heavy lifting this prosecution had to do to get the judge to agree that only the last week leading up to the murder would go in? And now he busts through that prohibition, and now he's opened himself up to cross-examination of the whole Thomas Young affair. Grinder took the stand and described all of it because the defense believed that if only the last week before the murder were allowed in, it would make Grinder look like he had suddenly done illicit things and killed his wife in a frenzy when she found out. So they wanted to tell their story that way. Okay, I don't believe that. I don't believe that a defense attorney in a capital murder case is going to, a premeditated capital murder case, is is, is going to allow their client to get no. up on the stand. I think it was his idea. I, 100%. I think his attorney did all he could to navigate the waters but as far as I know, you're trained in college to never put your accused client on the stand. Not especially ever. if they're guilty. Never, never. Yeah, or there's any, there's any or difficulty. Prone to 
Freudian slips. Right. It's just better to let the evidence speak. That's what I've always heard. Well, I mean, the prosecution has the burden of proving that it was him. Yeah. If they have not met their burden, why would you put him up there don't to put, now prove that it yeah, was him? Don't put his character up there. We're all human. We all suck in whatever individual way we suck. And that's why you don't put that on the stand because you're looking for, yeah, the reasonable doubt standard. That's not hard to get to. It really isn't. There are a lot of doubts in this world. So once you get up there, though, you eliminate all the doubts. Don't open your mouth. Yeah, I mean, the physical evidence was very strong. So he may have been, you know, it was almost insurmountable. The, the police were all over the crime scene early and often. They were able to gather so much evidence against him. The witnesses, the early retrieval of the evidence before the elements could wash the blood away. The blood stains all over Grinder, including blood splatter, consistent with him having been inches from the blows to May's head with a sledgehammer and eight distinct knife wounds. Dr. Grinder had a problem. He said he found his wife dead, so that means her blood was not flowing. So if he found her dead, he would have had loads of blood on him, yes, from hugging her and trying to move her and even resuscitate her, but he wouldn't have had blood splatter. And yet his shoes were covered in tiny splatter, not smears and not large drops. Then there was his stories that he told police, told his niece, told his sister-in-law, and even his stories that he told police that kept changing. I mean, the, the jury was going to be keeping track of all of that. Grinder was always making up a story to fit the new piece of evidence, like a back rub, so therefore her fingernails will have my DNA under them, and simultaneous nosebleeds, and both bleeding into the same Kleenex, and then into a hand towel found in his car. He one. even suggested that May had put the used Kleenex in her pocket, and that is why there's any... DNA transfer, if you find DNA transfer, it's from that Kleenex and so on. Oh, so awkward. So, I mean, Grinder's only defense was I didn't do it. And he also thought he had to have been, a, there had to have been a stranger in the woods, just like those other people who had been killed. But there were so many differences between the other two murders and May's murder. The police did a good job of neutralizing that plausible explanation for how May wound up dead. And the defense was asking the jury to believe too many coincidences. A killer with a sledgehammer and a knife that just happens to decide to go kill at random in a well-used public recreational area. That same killer was in the same store buying a murder weapon when Grinder was there and the killer was just three minutes behind him in the same register. Jesus. I mean. Come on. Las Vegas wouldn't take those odds. <laughs> I don't want to dive too much in the DNA because we're talking about 1999 technology and the expert testimony and descriptions about DNA. OJ's trial and the Grinder's trial and so many DNA as evidence trials back then were just so dense with science that a lot of juries just zoned out. But his DNA and May's DNA were found on the gloves, the bags. There was DNA evidence pointing to Dr. Grinder. And I really want to go into what the jury had to say after they rendered their unanimous verdict in this case. And I'll start with the DNA evidence. And the elephant in the courtroom throughout the trial, the strange double life of Dirk Grinder. The jury indicated that after 24 hours of testimony, only one thing mattered that caused them to render the verdict that they did, and it was not the DNA evidence. They tried to follow all the DNA expert testimony, but as I mentioned earlier, DNA testimony in 1999 was dense. 
it was still a little air quotes out there to most people. They found blood splatter important, but it wasn't the most pivotal. The jury also indicated that they were not pleased with the double life of Dr. Grinder any more than they were with how he testified. They said that many, that when he was talking about his indiscretions, and there were so many, that he always had his head down and he would not look at them. And when he was trying to explain what he, why he did those things, he would cry, but there were no tears coming out. He would not only look at the jury, he would only look at the jury when he was saying something about himself. And that wasn't inculpatory, something benign or flattering. They didn't like him, but they threw all of that out as irrelevant against the single thing that hefted most of the weight for the the jury. In the jury room, they took a banana with them. They plumped up the gloves used in the murder, using a banana in one of the finger portions of the glove. They used it to make a print and compared the design to the designs on Dirk Grinder's bloody shirt, and it was a perfect match. Again and again, they tried to explain it. There was just no getting around this one piece of evidence. That and all of the coincidences and all of the circumstantial evidence of the eyewitnesses Dr. Grinder's behavior after the murder, they all rendered their verdict about whether or not they wanted to, because they didn't want to convict him, but they did. And on June 29, 2001, Dirk Grinder was found guilty of first-degree premeditated murder of his wife, May, with malice and aforethought. All his appeals have been based on technical issues, such as the way the jurors were selected and and the banana issue in the jury room. He lost his first appeal in 2010 and his last appeal in 2013. He's trying now to get a compassionate release because he is 82 years old. I vote no because you're just a wheeler and a dealer, snake snake oil skin salesman, and you murdered someone. No, I'm compassionate for the person you murdered even though in prison Dirk is known as the good doctor and his prison mates go to him and trust him to help them get the right meds get the checkups he checks their symptoms gives them advice generally acting as a beloved doctor who is making house calls the big house that is (laughs) he resides in medium security prison in Norfolk well that doesn't sound so bad it doesn't surprise me that prisoners would exalt a man like Dirk who can help them in tangible ways but the hold he has to this day over his three children is baffling to me. Colin, Kristen, and Britt continue to fight for his innocence. Perhaps it is something that they do to protect themselves. It's one thing to lose a precious mother to murder. It's another thing entirely to know that your dear old dad would not only murder your mother, but that he would do that to you. Anyway, I I've, I do feel some compassion for the kids because that's a trauma I can't understand and I hope I never experience. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking or feeling, but we have a conviction now. I don't think there's compassionate relief for someone who does premeditation like this and then says the weird things he said. And I just... No, me either. I want to end this episode with a quote from... Uh, Ursa, the the sister of uh, May, 
They say when a person dies, a library burns. When my sister May died, the Smithsonian burned. To me, that tells the story of a woman of substance, murdered by a brilliant but hollow man. So, Caroline, I'll always remember May, and I'm so sorry for what happened to you. Today's episode is researched and written and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. Uh, Subscribing, a good review, telling your friends, putting it on your Facebook page, all of those actions help people to find us. And we want people to find us. We appreciate our audience very much. And one more thing, and that is, don't forget to live and let live. Well, goodbye, Caroline. Bye-bye.